Do you believe that God answers prayer? Oh, only five of you are convinced. <laughs> do you believe that God answers prayer if you do say amen? amen? Okay. Do you believe that God's word speaks? If you do, I'd like you to take 15 seconds. Just offer a one-sentence prayer up to God. God, would you speak to me right now through your word? Father, you hear the hearts of your people. We have gathered here today because we want to hear from you. There isn't a person in this auditorium or that's going to listen on iTunes or tap into our website to listen, that doesn't want to encounter you, Father. Every one of us wants to meet you and to know you and understand your desire for our life. Even if we don't conform to that, Father, we want to know it. So God, I ask that you would speak you would rain down in power through your Holy Spirit in this moment, and that every individual in this auditorium would come to a greater understanding of who you are and your claim on our life. So Father, we invite you to speak through your word, that your Holy Spirit would have authority in this place, and that you would rain down upon us in Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 9. We left off last week with chapter 8, and uh, only a few more weeks left in this study. Um, we're dealing with themes as opposed to some of the specifics. I'm, I'm going to share with you something this morning that took me until my mid-30s to realize. And I, I struggled with the concept of knowing God's will for my life. I was serving in full-time ministry, went to Bible college, raised in church, raised in a strong Christian setting, and yet I wrestled like every one of you do. I've heard people in their 80s say, I want to know God's will for my life. Because many of us feel like we haven't heard from God. And so it took me until my mid-30s to really come to terms with what I'm about to share with you this morning from Hebrews chapter 9. Where we left off at last week, we understand that Jesus is at God's right hand. We had that imagery in our head last week and that He has a heavenly sanctuary. We'll get into that next week when we get into chapter 10. But there's this anchor verse that I want to share with you about the earthly sanctuary. And I, I just need you to see it. It's not going to feel much like an anchor verse, but just look with me at it. Exodus 25.8, it says, Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. Now, where we're going with this in Hebrews chapter 9 is really about you. It's about you understanding who you are to God. It's about understanding who can and who cannot serve. Who can stand before God and who cannot. In other words, who is worthy and who is not worthy. And Hebrews 9 brings all of that out. Now, I don't want this to feel like an archaeological lesson or a science or a history lesson. It, there's a temptation that it could feel that way here in the very beginning. If you love history, you're going to love this first part. Um, this, this component, though, is so important for us to understand to know why this teacher is 
is sharing what he is in Hebrews chapter 9. So let's go to verse 1, and I'll explain why I said that. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Now regulations, that, that brings to mind the thought of rites and ceremonies. I don't know if you were raised in church or what your faith background might be. If you think of rites and ceremonies, what you're thinking of. Maybe you're thinking of somebody swinging a canter or incense filling a room. What's your, what comes to mind? Just know this, the rites, the regulations that God put in place in the Old Testament, they were not pointless. They always point to the Savior. The first covenant, the, the law that was given with Moses and with Abraham, was not pointless. There was a reason that God brought it into existence. God does everything with a purpose. Nothing is pointless. And so he gave certain kinds of worship and a special place to worship because they had a point. They all pointed to Jesus. There's an imagery that's coming out of here that shows us the picture of the one who is eternal. So here's the theme. What we should be hearing by this point after eight chapters and now starting into the ninth is that God is really calling upon the people who have received this letter here in 2014 and back in the first century to be willing to leave behind, to surrender the old things, the things that we cling to. And we really do cling to them. Can I get an amen? amen? I mean, we do. We cling to the old things of our old life because they seem so familiar. But know this, God never asks you to surrender the old things that you cling to without offering you something far, far better. He always has something better in mind for you, but far better in return. So this word, regulations for worship, is a Greek word before we move on to verse 2. It, it literally is talking about the ordinances, the regulations, how to do it, and who gets to do it. That, that's what it's talking about, the methodology. But he also referred to this earthly place of worship in verse 1. Well, let's see what it is in verse 2. But here's where the history begins. Verse 2 says this, For a tent was prepared... The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, which was a golden, which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Know this, what God designed for the tabernacle was intended to be portable and not to be permanent. From a human viewpoint, they're looking at this thing and it's the very core of impermanence, every impression of being temporary. As a matter of fact, the writer uses the word skene for the word tent. Skene literally means like a hut. It's something that doesn't scream permanence to you. Well, the earthly tabernacle was not meant to look that way. But don't picture a Coleman tent either, okay? This is not like a pop-up tent. I'm going to help you with this imagery. John MacArthur said this, I want you to see his quote, that there's only two chapters in the Bible that talk about the creation story. There's 50 chapters that talk about the tabernacle. So it really demands your attention. Well, what is the tabernacle? Just so you can understand the framework of where this author is coming from. Let me show you the first image on the screen. The tabernacle was this structure that was located in the heart of where Israel made their encampment. So they've got these tents spread all over, housing three million people. And then in the center, they've got this courtyard made of linen. And in the center of the courtyard is this tabernacle, this tent. 
That's what he's referring to here. Now, if you were to go inside it, this is what it would look like, this little chamber areas. I would like you to see the inside. There's the entrance, there's the altar, there's the laver where they washed, and then you step inside the holy place. There's a veil. You step inside the holy place, and that's where the priests did their daily activity. But when you go through the next veil, you enter the holy of holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. Now understand that there's furnishings that are inside this. Pieces of furniture. And every one of those pieces of furniture pointed to Jesus. Although these people didn't understand at the time. So look with me on the left-hand side. When you look inside the tabernacle, on the left you see the priest who's standing before a seven-branched lampstand. What we call a menorah today. Well, the priest would light this with olive oil, pure olive oil, no wick. Because God wanted them to be reminded, you, Israel, my chosen people, are to be a light to all the world. So Jesus shows up in the New Testament and He says to the people, I am the light of the world. Another piece of furniture that you see on the right-hand side as you go in there, you see the table. It's called the table of showbread. And every week on Sabbath, a priest would walk in. Twelve fresh loaves of bread. And he would stack it on what would be my right-hand side. You're looking at it a little bit washed out because of the daylight coming in. But there's this table where the priest would put these twelve loaves of bread. Why? Because God wanted to remind them, I am the source of your bread. I am your sustenance. Everything that you have comes from me. Jesus shows up in the New Testament and says, I am the bread of life. Okay? See the symmetry here, the, the symbology that's going on to help people understand everything's pointing to Jesus. Now, in the very center, before you went into the Holy of Holies at the veil, was the altar of incense. Altar of incense is covered in gold, just like everything else was. We can't see it here in this image, it's on the other side of the priest, but the altar of incense is where there would be this incense literally being offered up before God. And then you come to the veil. The veil that's got the cherubim inscribed upon it. The image of the cherubim. Behind that curtain, behind the second curtain, is the most holy place. The place where only one person could go. And then only on the Day of Atonement, one high priest. And behind that wall, it is absolutely quiet. You hear no singing priest there. No one would talk there. Matter of fact, the only thing that could be heard was on the other side of the curtain where they would hear the tinkling of bells that were draped from the high priest's waist so that as he walked and shuffled along, there would be a ringing of bells so the people on the other side of the veil would know he's still alive. He hasn't died in the presence of God. Because if a high priest went in there being ceremonially unclean, game over. So they actually attached a rope to him so that if the bells stopped ringing... They could pull him back out. And when the priest left the Holy of Holies, the people of Israel collectively gave a, oh, he lived. He made it. He stood before God and he didn't die. And he was in there on our behalf. Now when he went in there, one piece of furniture, the one you're going to see on the screen, the Ark of the Covenant. It's the only thing that was allowed in there. So there's the priest and the ark. We talked about the ark a little bit last week because of the the mercy seat, that particular place between the angel's wings. We don't know what happened to the ark. 
Last time you see it in the Bible is in 2 Deuteronomy. King Josiah tells the priests to take it inside the temple. Once they build a permanent structure, he says, take it inside the temple. They take it inside the temple and you never hear it again. Tradition says that Jeremiah hid it. When Babylon descended upon Jerusalem, it was taken into hiding, and it's still in hiding today. We don't know that. I mean, it's just speculation. This thing is covered with gold, and we know it's encircled by the cherubim of glory. You see that in verse 5 in Hebrews 9, where you're looking at it. It says, literally, there's angels spread over it, encircled by the cherubim. That place between the cherubim is what we talked about last week. If God were to meet with man, it was right there. At what's known as the mercy, what church? Seat. The mercy seat. The place where God would meet with man. So it screams this reality. It screams nobody gets to talk to God except one person. This very special person. This descendant of Levi. Of the tribe of Levi who's made it through the priestly order and then he becomes a high priest and he gets to go in there one day a year. And he gets to talk with God. That's what's going on in the mind of this Hebrew writer. And he comes to verse 5 and he says, but of this I can't speak now in detail. I mean, kind of leave us hanging there. He says, literally, I've got no time to get to it. There's other issues. There's greater significance here. So let's move on to these other issues. Verse 6, it says this, These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes. And he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So the priests go regularly into that first section where the candle's at and where the table of showbread's at. They're in there every day. Why? Because the people sin every single day. And so they constantly have to be going in there before God, making sacrifices, but into the Holy of Holies only one day. So this morning, let's make you an honorary Jew. All right, you up for that? All right, good. One person is. We'll make you an honorary Jew, and we're going to say that you have some guilt on your heart, and you decide that you've got to go to see your priest. So you're living in this period of time, you're dealing with some guilt, something is heavy on your conscience, and you've got to go to the temple or to the tabernacle in this particular case. Because of something that you've done, something that you've committed, and you're wearing this weight... Let's watch this actually play out in the book of Leviticus, chapter 5, and verse 1. Talking about a person who has to go see his priest. Verse 1 says this, Now if a person sins, after he hears a public adjuration to testify, when he is a witness, whether he has seen or otherwise known, if he does not tell it, then he will bear his guilt. Let me explain that for you, 2014 language. Let's say you're a construction worker. You're on the job site. One of your buddies who's a co-worker steals one of the employer's tools, and you see him do it. As a matter of fact, you watch him walk away with his boss's skill saw in his hand and put it in his truck. And he doesn't intend to give it back. Now, you've been called in as a witness. And you've been called in as a witness to give witness to the fact that you saw it being stolen, but you don't want to get your buddy in trouble, so you hold back the information. That's what this is talking about here. This person, when he's giving a public adjuration, meaning he's being called to testify, if he holds back the information, he's going to bear guilt. He's complicit to the crime. So now he's wearing this weight. He's got to go see his priest. That's where verse 5 comes in. 
It says this, So it shall be when he becomes guilty in one of these, that he shall confess that in which he has sinned. Verse 6, He shall also bring his guilt offering to the Lord for his sin, which he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat, as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for his sin. So the guy's wearing the weight. He finds his priest and he has to make a public confession, speaking it out loud to his priest. And then he offers the goat or the lamb, and the priest takes it and makes a sacrifice on his behalf. That's why they're going into this first section all the time. Now, you're still an honorary Jew, okay? You leave the temple. You're feeling pretty good. You've dealt with the sin issue in your life. You've got a clean slate. You're thinking, oh man, I'm late for work. I took time off to come do this. I've got to get back to the office. So you, you jump on your late model donkey, and you turn the ignition, and you take off. And you're hightailing it through town because you want to get back to the office. And you come to an intersection where you know that it's turning yellow, but if you floor it, your donkey's new model, you can really make it through the light, but somebody cuts you off. And you decide, I'm going to go for it anyways. So you blow through the intersection, and boom, you collide with another donkey. There's damaged donkeys all over the place. Now what happens? People are jumping off their donkeys. They're meeting in the middle of the intersection. They're pointing out to you the damage you've done. Tempers flare. Words are exchanged. Curses start. Fists begin flying. Eventually, people calm down. Workday goes on, and you get to home. End of the day, and you start thinking back over your day. Oh, man. I wish I had not have done that. It's going to cost me another goat. I've got to go find my priest again. I've got to take more time off from work. I've got to make a public confession. This is going to cost me money. Eventually, people committed enough of those kind of things that they just kind of pushed them to the back of their mind. And sins piled up. Well, that's why God instituted the Day of Atonement, the one single day when the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies. That's why He says that these sins that were offered for the unintentional sins of the people. See, the consequences is that the sacrifices were never, ever done. People constantly needed sacrifices made on their behalf because of these forgotten sins that are accumulating. Well, then comes the Day of Atonement. Priest goes in, second section, one day a year, and everybody gets a clean slate because he's gone into the Holy of Holies. He's made the ultimate sacrifice on behalf of all the people. And everybody in the nation feels good. We've all got a clean slate. You know what the problem is? Monday's coming, and it starts all over again. Over and over again. And over. So he's making this argument here. Israel knew that whatever sin was missed on their regular sacrifices is now taken care of. They got this clean slate, but there's an indication here. Go with me to verse 8. By this, he says, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. He says it's symbology. It literally is pointing to the fact that something's going on here, it hasn't been complete. Verse 9 says, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Short language. 
the Holy Spirit is using this action, saying that the temple, the sacrifice, and the tabernacle is still going on because God has not yet sent Jesus. It hasn't been taken care of. So he says, this is an illustration. As long as the priests are still working, it's evidence. No one gets to God. There's no access to God. So the outer court was like this witness to people. There's a veil. There's the Holy of Holies. And you can't get to it. And you can't get to God. So you've got to carry your sin all the time. Because there was extremely limited access. One man, one day, to go before God. But everything changed in 33 A.D., didn't it, church? What happened when Jesus died on the cross to the veil? Shred into, that's right. Bible students, excellent. Matter of fact, look with me on the screen. Matthew 27, 50. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up His Spirit. And, the, and behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. And New Hope Church now gets to meet God through Jesus, ushered literally into the true Holy of Holies, into the true tabernacle. The place where Jesus sits at the right hand of God. You and I have direct access to the presence. So in verse 9, he says, that Old Testament system, it can't perfect the conscience. Now that's a word you want to remember as we come into this home stretch here. It can't perfect the conscience of the worshiper. The, the reference to the, your conscience is really significant. It says it can't clear the conscience that tells me the Old Testament system was not complete because the Old Covenant was about external things. But your conscience is what? Internal. So the Old Covenant's external, New Covenant, internal. It's about your conscience. The real problem with the internal troubled conscience is that it needs clearing. So we're told in verse 10, these things were put in place. They were imposed until the time of Reformation. The, the Greek word for Reformation, you'll see up on the screen, it, it literally is talking about setting things straight. Putting things in order again. Well, that's what Jesus did when He came. So what we see here is this tabernacle system is a picture of Jesus. But it could not do the work of Jesus. It just pointed to Him. So we come back to verse 11. Here we come into the last stretch. Verse 11, But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Now we're told in verse 11, it's not made with hands, not of this creation, the, the eternal tabernacle. We're going to get into that in the next chapter. Understand the earthly tabernacle. For its time, it was spectacular. It was beautiful. And it served a purpose. But it was temporary. It was going out of existence. The one in heaven cannot be destroyed. Why? Because it's made by God made with heavenly materials. So he contrasts everything into why Jesus is better. He says in verse 12, he did it with the means of his own blood. Do you think that any of those sheep or any of those goats or any of those heifers went to the altar voluntarily? I'm guessing not. 
I'm guessing none of them signed up and said, I'll be the sacrificial lamb today. None of the animals wanted to do that. But yet we're told Jesus, by means of His own blood, did something very specifically. He voluntarily offered Himself. And what did He do? Verse 12, He secured an eternal redemption. That should speak to you this morning. If you've ever struggled with whether or not your salvation is secure, God's Word says it is and God cannot lie. And He secured it eternally and it's redemption. Three really powerful words in your salvation experience. That tells me it's not conditioned on what Mark Kring has done. It's not conditioned on what you have done. It's conditioned on what Jesus did. And he says it's permanent. It can't be taken away. So here we come into the end, verse 13. Last two verses. Don't mentally start thinking of your car keys. Stay with me on this. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more with the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. It's the how much more argument. If you go to Bible college today, you're going to get a theological dissertation from somebody on this passage. The how much more is this thing that doctoral students all over the nation write papers on when they graduate. The disparity issue. How great is Jesus the Son of God Versus how depraved is man. How much more. See, the idea of Jesus as an offering that God actually required Him to shed His blood in reality is repugnant to most people. When they think of God requiring Jesus' blood to have to be poured out, to be tortured on a cross, that that was God's requirement, most people think of this as totally unacceptable. But let me help you with that if that's you. Never ever forget the atonement or the payment that was required by God must be seen in light of a holy and just God. And the requirement of the sacrifice of Jesus' blood to buy us should tell us just how far separated we are from God. Or we're separated if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. That God required the ultimate payment, the ultimate sin payment, really gives us some insight that it required that to be capable of overcoming this magnitude of sin because God's looking upon an earth that sins every single day, constantly. That's how far separated. So that's why He required His own Son. To that degree, what did it do for us? It didn't just save us. It didn't just secure us. And give us an eternal redemption. My Bible says in verse 14, it gave you a clear conscience. Look with me at that verse very closely. To purify our conscience, to serve the living God. Do you have a clear conscience this morning? What does that even look like? Warren Wiersbe, a theologian, said this. I'd love you to see his quote. A clear conscience comes from a deep, abiding sense of forgiveness. It's true. That is so significant. That's the kind of thing that will make you sleep well at night. Knowing that God has truly forgiven you. Even if you can't forgive yourself. 
this clear conscience that you're promised here, He purified you. So here's the significance of what you're seeing this morning. Coming out of these last two verses especially, He frees our conscience from guilt. Do you think any Old Testament person ever had that? I think temporarily. When they go in and see the priest, they'd come out and then they'd get into the traffic accident and then it starts all over again. But they didn't have permanent freedom from the sense of sin in their life. We're told this in Hebrews 10.22, in Christ we, meaning you and I, draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Now it's taken 14 verses to get to this last point. This point number one was that you've been given this free, clear conscience. Here's the second one. You, as a result of all this, are made worthy. Now, you might struggle seeing how that comes out of this. I want to help you with it. You are made worthy this morning. You have been given a clear conscience. Because of what Jesus did for you, you are also made worthy, and that cannot be taken away from you. He has purified you for a purpose. Do you see that in verse 14, what the purpose is? Many people miss it. To serve the living God. To serve the living God. And I want you to start asking yourself, where am I at on that scale this morning? Am I recognizing that I have the privilege to serve the living God? It does not matter this morning how old you are. And it does not matter how young you are. How new to the faith you are or how mature to the faith you are. Many people use that as excuses. Many people disqualify themselves, saying, I I don't know enough about the Bible to talk to somebody. I can't be a teacher. Disqualify themselves. Some people would say, I can't talk to my coworker. I don't know enough about the Bible. They disqualify themselves. Some people would say, I can't go serve. I I can't go volunteer my time. I, I just don't have enough time. What is it that qualifies you to serve the living God? Up until now, we've seen only the special people got into the tabernacle. The descendants of the tribe of Levi. The high priest who rose through the priestly order got to go in to the Holy of Holies. The special people. Those whom God had set apart. And this passage is screaming out because the Old Covenant is done away with. Because you have been given a pure conscience, because you have been sanctified through Jesus Christ, you're qualified. So what is it that keeps you from serving the living God? Other than selfishness with our schedules, I'll make that a subject for another time. Most people disqualify themselves. Not because of their schedules, because of their past saying, I I don't measure up. I can't serve. What does service even look like? Let me come back to the anchor verse. Okay? Let's go all the way back to Exodus 25. This is where we end. Exodus 25.8 Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. I told you this has to do with who can and who cannot serve. Who can go in and who cannot. Who can stand before God and who cannot. Let's come back to the veil. The Holy of Holies had this gorgeous purple veil blocking off the Ark of the Covenant. Look at God's instructions for this veil to be built. Exodus 26.31 You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen. 
It shall be made with cherubim, the work of a skillful workman. How did they get the skill to build the veil for the Holy of Holies? These are the people who three weeks earlier had been under the whips of Egypt. They had gained skill through great trauma in their life. These are the people who had been tortured through the fires of slavery. The construction of the tabernacle was accomplished by people who had been slaves and trampled under by the foot of Egypt. They were building palaces for Pharaoh, and now they find themselves free people, completely free. They're willing workers on a construction project of all construction projects. Matter of fact, if you get a chance later today, go back and read Exodus 25. You'll see a fascinating conversation between God and Moses in which God says this, Moses, gather for me linen workers, bricklayers, carpenters, those who have skill in coppersmith and in gold, everyone who has a willing heart. See, what God knows about people at that time is the same as what's true today. Do you have a willing heart? Matter of fact, when Moses begins collecting money for the sanctuary, God says the exact same thing to him. Moses, when the people start bringing money, let only those who have a willing heart bring it to me. What God has done is He's taken the worst moments of these people's lives, times when they couldn't even see their own way out for the depth of the darkness that they were in, the very people who could have felt least qualified. Those are the people God uses, He wants to use. So where does the doubt come in in your mind? I'm going to blame Satan. Because this is what it sounds like. You're not qualified. Don't you know what you've done? you remember that if those people knew who you really are inside you're not qualified that's a total contrast isn't it to the 180 degree view in which God says bring me those who have been shaped and molded by trauma and they've been prepared for a greater purpose see this ultimately gets to the issue of God's will for your life Many people struggle with what I told you I struggled with in my 30s. God, what is your will for my life? What do you want me to do? I discovered in my 30s, it wasn't really about God's will for my life. As much as God wanted to know that I was willing. When you can get to the point where you surrender your will to say, God, I'm willing that's when God begins to open doors and begins to point you down the right path. See, this is ultimately about the issue of God's will for your life, but it's about surrender. Here's the problem with saying, I want to know God's will for my life. I learned this through very painful times. The problem with me saying, God, I want to know your will for my life puts me in charge, makes me the boss. And once you reveal your will to me, then I'll decide how I'm going to respond. See, he's the master, I'm the servant. I used to do this. Say, God, I'm going to go do this thing over here. Would you come and bless it? I got it backwards. God says, I'm the master, you come to me. 
and I'll show you what to do. But you've got to have a willing heart. It starts with surrender. So God wants to know that you're putting Him in charge. Just say, I'm surrendered. That's all it requires. I really open myself up to you. So that's how I'm going to pray for us today as we leave. I'm going to pray for myself that way. Because the moment that you think that you've arrived at understanding what surrender really looks like, guess what? God's got more to teach you. I'm going to pray for us that way. Would you join me in that? Father, I'm confident throughout the course of this week and that there's individuals in this auditorium who are struggling with knowing Your will. And perhaps it's even paralyzed them. And they can't move forward because they're not sure what the next step should be. God, I ask for those individuals that You first of all would remind us that we have been bought with the blood of Jesus. And that we have been redeemed and that redemption is eternal and it's secure and it cannot go away. And as a result of that, Father, that we have a clear conscience and that You have purified us. Father, once You have lodged those things in our hearts, I know that You will use that. I ask that You would translate it specifically for Your church, for this church, these people that You've gathered together, myself included, that we would be fully surrendered to You to the degree, God, that we're willing to even get on our knees and say, help us, Father, to be more surrendered. Never assuming that we've arrived. Father, I'm sure right now individuals are struggling with how hard this is. So I pray, and we invited Your Holy Spirit here earlier, I ask that You would come alongside each person in this room. Remind us that with You, all things are possible. There is nothing that cannot be accomplished with you. God, we just offer this up to you in surrender, in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, Amen.